another world, another time in the age of wonder. You are listening to Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone. This is what I came for. Your vital essence, the dark crystal. I can feel something. Hear it almost. Don't move. Don't move? Where would I go? Quiet! Here's your host, Philip Mitchell. Hello and welcome to Trial by Stone, and this is episode 8 of the podcast for March 2015. This month's guest is Brian J. Jones, and he is the author of Jim Henson, The Biography, which goes into a detailed life of the great Jim Henson. And I had the opportunity to chat to him about his book, which is uh, getting a paperback release sometime in May this year. And it's a fantastic book. Like, it's a great read. I mean, it's currently out now in hardcover or iBook or even um, the audiobook version, which is just as um, fantastic. And, um, you know, if you're a big fan of The Muppets or The Dark Crystal or anything Jim Henson... Uh, the book is definitely worth a read. Now let's go to the Podling Village and chat with Brian J. Jones about Jim Henson. Hello, Brian. Yeah, hey, Philip. Hey, how are you? Not bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just, just want to just, first of all, just saying thank you so much for, um, for being on the podcast. Oh sure, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so like I, I've definitely read your um auto, uh, your biography on on Jim Henson. And I was really um yeah impressed with the with the writing and sort of really getting to know um the the inside of um of of Jim Henson. So actually, I was just very interested in how you landed the gig on um on yeah getting being able the opportunity of being able to yeah to write about um Jim Henson. Well, what it what had happened was after I after I finished my um. My biography, Washington Irving. I was, I was sort of sorry about that. I was sort of looking around for my next project, and I had been reading about Jim on Wikipedia, <clears throat> and um, I, I was reading something. Yeah, you know, I can't remember what I had read, and I, I went running down to the bottom to look at the citation. Like anybody cites anything on Wikipedia, but um, as I found out later, Muppet fans are actually great at citing their sources. So I went down to the bottom of the article, and all the books that were cited were Jim Henson, The Works, and Jim Henson, Designs and Doodles, and it was, you know, it was all stuff about Jim's work, but there wasn't, I didn't see anything that, you know, there was a biography, or, or especially not a, gro- you know, a grown-up biography, if you will. There were, plenty of, there were plenty of, like, young adult books and things like that. So I, uh, I called my agent, and I said, you know, is, 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 there, is there a Robert Caro out there who's been writing this for 20 years? You know, he's been, Jim's been dead for 20 years. It hasn't yes. been done. Is somebody doing this? And uh, and he said, you know what? Let me see what I can find out. And in the meantime, I went over to the University of Maryland because I live the next county over from uh, where Jim, where Jim went to college. And so I so I went over to UMD and talked with the, there's a, a film archives over there. And I talked to the archivist over there for a while. And you know he said he hadn't heard of anybody doing anything. Mm-hmm. And so um, he gave me a business card for Arthur Novell, who was the executive director at the, at the time of the Jim Henson Legacy, which is an organization that Jane Henson set up, that Arthur Novell, who was Jim's publicist, was involved in setting it up, and a couple of other business people, his counsel and folks. And so I, so I sent an email off to Arthur, and, um, and, you know, which I nursed for like three weeks before I actually sent it because I was so nervous. Yeah. And 
just just basically sort of made the case, you know, Jim's been dead for 20 years and Bernie Brillstein recently died and Jerry Joel recently died. And, you know, it's getting time to do this and Jim has never been done. And, you know, it's really important to have the family involved and, have, you know, get into his private archives. And and um, so I sent that off to Arthur and he got back to me very quickly and, and sort of got it. And, you know, and I don't know if it's the publicist in him or but, you know, but he wrote back and he said, you know, th- you've really given us something to think about. Mm. And, and so we... Um, you know, we started emailing back and forth, and then sort of slowly, I I would go meet with you know Lisa Henson, and then I'd have breakfast with Jane and with Cheryl, and I, you know, would talk with Brian, and so we always we just sort of went back and forth for quite a while and getting to know each other, and it would be yes, and then it would be no, then it would be maybe, then it would be well, uh, maybe not, and you know, so it was just it was hot, cold, and back and forth, and for about two years. Uh, and, and then finally what I, what I said, I, I told them, you know, you guys are a Hollywood family, so let me give you an audition tape, which was not actually an audition tape, but, uh, I went to the library of Congress here in DC and I pulled every newspaper story I could find from when Jim was working in television here in DC. Yes. Um, when he was doing Sam and Friends in his te- late teens and early twenties, and I wrote uh, a sample chapter based off of the, the information I found there, and and you know using some other interviews Jim's had done and some of the other books, and I sent that off to them and just you know said this is this is the way I would do this, yeah. and this is the way it would read, and you know this, what do you think? And that really sort of knocked it open. At that point, you know I think they saw I you know was not up to shenanigans or anything like that, and. And so, uh, and and at that point, you're sort of a made man. Then they, you know, they permitted me to use their archives, and they let me interview all of them, and they gave me contact information for the Muppet performers, and and you're sort of off to the races at that point. So anyway, so that was that was how how it all sort of came about. But it it took two and a half years to you know to finally get sort of a yes. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that must have been like the, I guess the most challenging aspect uh, with with writing the biographies is that two 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 and a half years span of. Um, getting um, the Jim Henson and come, you know, the the family of Jim Henson um, sort of on board with this. Yeah, I mean, because you know, I, I if I, to do it the way I wanted to do it, I really, you know, I really wanted to be sure I could talk with them, you know, on the record and get Jane on the record and 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 you know, and, and really sort of have them in my corner. It was it wasn't an authorized biography in the sense that they didn't have editorial control, and but you know, I, I tried to keep them as actively involved as I could, and I gave them you know the first draft, and then I even gave them the second draft, and yeah. know, so on. <laughs> So, you know, to make sure that, you know, that I, that I, you know, wasn't making any chronological errors and things like that. So, yeah. so it was helpful sort of having them in the corner, but really also getting into those archives was, was very, was, was, was huge because his papers aren't held, you know, in a, in a library or anything like that. They're privately held in the Jim Henson companies. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, um, for me, the most interesting, um, aspect to me uh, when reading um with the biography was sort of um how he um how he got into puppeteering and it wasn't so much that he had a you know passion for it in in the beginning um of his life it was just an opportunity that sort of came about when um he wanted to work in in television um can you go on in, in regards to how that sort of came about yeah, I mean that is that's you know that's one of those sort of common uh, mythologies that that sort of has sprung up around Jim. People always say, "Oh God, he must have always played with puppets as kids, and he must have been a big puppetry fan." Well, no, I mean Jim was a big fan of Kukla Fran and Ollie, but so was John Steinbeck, and John Steinbeck didn't become a puppeteer because he loved Kukla Fran and Ollie. So, mm. uh, yeah. I mean everybody watched Kukla Fran and Ollie. So what? But Jim loved television. And, uh, you know, Kukla, Fran and Ollie were on TV, and so were a lot of things. And I always compare it to sort of the early days of cable when, uh, like, I had cable, you know, in 1981 or whatever, when it was still actually a cable attached to your TV. And um, and I would, like, shotgun through every single channel and watch, you know, all 61 channels in 18 seconds. 
Uh, and Jim, <laughs> when TV first came out in you know in 1950, when he got his first TV, would I think did the equivalent of this. He would just he would watch anything he could find on television. It didn't matter how good it was, how bad it was, yeah. how poor. I mean, he was just fascinated by the technology and by the idea that you were seeing something on this little teeny screen that was going on someplace else in the world. Um, you know, he really loved that technology and really wanted to be a part of that and and really thought for a while that it was going to be, you know, in high school, he, he would build sets for high school productions and do posters and things. I think he really thought he was going to be in TV doing, you know, production stuff and doing, uh, you know, doing set design and things like that. And when there was an ad in the Washington newspapers for young people to come perform puppets for a local TV show, uh, for him, that was really just the opportunity that he needed more than anything else. So he taught himself in about two weeks to build and perform puppets and went down to the local CBS affiliate and auditioned with these puppets and got on TV. And that was really, I think, all he wanted. I mean, that was what those puppets were for, to get him on TV. And it just turned out that he was, you know, and it turned out, he turned out to be just so good at it. Yes. Um, I think, and I think largely because, as he always said, he didn't know what the rules were, you know, because he had grown up watching puppet shows and studying puppetry and being a big fan of puppets. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't really know what they, what the rules were. It's like sitting down, you know, behind the wheel of a car, not knowing what the speed limit is or something. You know, he just, he didn't, he didn't know what the rules were. So he was constantly just trying to figure things out on his own. Yeah. Uh, and so he's the one, you know, that figured out, for example, that you don't need to film the puppet theater like they did on Kukla Fran and all. You can just use the four sides of the TV screen. Yeah, absolutely. Like that was one of the, um, I guess, um, interesting things was I, I believe he was sort of like the first one to sort of um, uh, discover, you know, not to, to to discover, but to work in a way that he'd be able to, you know, have have like an extra, you know, monitor next to him so he can actually be able to watch um, his performances. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like because he realized that if, you know, if what's on the TV screen is what's the most important, then you have to know what that looks like. And the obvious solution to that, though no one else had figured it out, was to just put the monitor on the floor and just so you could see exactly what that camera saw, um, which, you know, it's, it's really one of the few performances where you're the audience member and the performer at the same time. It's really kind of cool. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I guess like from that, um, from there, he worked on, you know, uh, Sam and Friends and um, and then eventually, you know, um, had the opportunity, of, you know, worked on um Sesame Street which um seemed to took you know quite its time to sort of um uh get the show happening I guess well uh Sesame Street actually was you know took off immediately Sesame Street was a hit almost immediately it was Muppet Show that took a little bit to catch on uh but Sesame Street was was huge uh, almost immediately you know it was on the cover of Time magazine and it was you know it, it got Jim the biggest reviews of his career <laughs> yeah. at that point that, that was almost an immediate hit the Muppet show was one that took a little time to find its footing and and the uh it took him actual several pilots uh in fact and, you know he had essentially two failed pilots and then one big no from CBS on his pitch reel so he yeah. essentially had three strikes when he finally put together the Muppet show but uh that one actually took probably a season even to sort of find its footing as well yeah, and almost um, I guess what's interesting is like with the successful, you know, with the success of the Muppet Show, it, it it could have been something that he could have really, he could have retired from if he didn't. But um, he he you know he always had a passion um for work and just sort of, and he always had um had a um, he always had you know a lot of ideas sort of flowing around in, in his head all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, The Muppet Show uh, was on five years, and at the height of its power, Jim takes it off the air to go make movies. You know, it, it was a show he probably could have kept doing for three years, four years, five years. 
And he just, uh, you know, he said, it's a very nice show. Nice is a very Jim Henson word. That's a very nice show. And, and he took it off the air sort of at the height of its power so he could go do film. Um, because Jim always sort of wanted to do the next thing. He, you know, once mm. he, he wanted to do, he wanted Muppet Show on TV. He got it. Once he got it on TV, he was kind of ready already to move on, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> so, so, you know, he was always, he was always ready to go to the next thing after he got there. And I guess let's, let's talk about, um, a little bit of, uh, the Dark Crystal. Um, I, I guess, uh, how it all began, it's sort of, um, he, he, it sort of came about, I guess, he was inspired when he saw some illustrations of um, Brian Frouds. Correct. And that, and that was, um, uh, what was the, the book um, that... I, yeah, I can't remember that off my head. The, the illustration was, um, it was a picture of this sort of this young adventurer standing at the edge of a waterfall that was tumbling over a carved, uh, like, goblin head. Okay, uh, yeah. I can't think of the name of the book all off the top of my head, but uh, but Jim loved that picture. I mean, that was right right there. As soon as he saw that, he knew that you know that something about that really spoke to him, and he really loved the way uh, Froud stuff looked. I, the way I described it is, you know, it was it was sort of science fiction with this Victorian shimmer to it almost. You know, it was yeah. it, it had this real you know it didn't look like anything else. Yes. And and so I you know I think Jim was really intrigued by that sense of design. Jim loved that design sense. And Brian Froud, I mean, he he would also at that about that same time was looking to try to bring his work into three dimensions. You know, do something with it. And you know, and and Jim showed him the Saturday Night Live Land of Gorch Muppets that they had built that had sort of those taxidermy eyes. And and so I think when Brian Froud saw that, he sort of knew Jim was his man. Yes. And, and so it was, you know, it was a really good creative partnership for both of them. They both really fed off of each other and were really inspired by each other. Yeah, definitely. And I think another um, inspiration of Jim Henson, um, I think, uh, was um, the the series of books of um, of um, Seth uh, by Jane Roberts. Yes. Um, that's that, like, you know, for Star Wars, if the hero of a journey faces is to Star Wars, then um, Seth Speaks would be to the Dark Crystal. Um in that way. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually really in curious, um, I guess, um, how, how much of that, you know, spirit, spirituality from, from the, those, uh, series of books played in, into the uh, process of the film and, and, and as well as, um, Jim's creative process. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know how definitively I can actually answer that. Um, you know, Jim was, Jim got into reading the Seth books right around the time his mother died. Okay. So, so it's sort of the kind of thing that a young man looking for answers would read. You know, it's just sort yeah. of a reassuring message about how you know we we do return and there are other other worlds beyond ours. And it sort of falls in line with Jim's own sort of spirituality. Anyway, Jim was raised Christian Science, but he wasn't really a practicing Christian scientist as a as an adult. Um, instead, he was more. Everybody told me that you know Jim was more spiritual more than anything else. Was sort of interested in all of it. Um, you know, for, you know, and, and he was very enthusiastic about the Seth books. You know, he would talk to people about it and he would drive up to go see, um, uh, uh, Miss Roberts, right? Is that her name? I can't think. Yeah. Jane that. Roberts. Yeah. yeah, yes, he, yeah. He, would drive, he would drive up to go visit with her. He went to see her on his own. Jane didn't come with him because she wasn't really that into the Seth books. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he would sort of push them on anybody to read and Frank Oz sort of, you know, loyally read them, but as he said, thought they were bull. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, so it was, you know, it, it was at a time of his life when Jim was kind of looking for answers as well. Um, and was just, and, but, but would look at sort of everything. Um, I think what informs, you know, Dark Crystal probably more than anything is just that sort of, 
you know, that design sense. You know, Jim was really interested in building and, you know, sort of moving on beyond the, you know, the ham, uh, not really hamstrung, but, you know, he was sort of, he was sort of, you know, the Muppets had sort of defined his design sense up to that point. Definitely, yeah. And so I think he was really interested in, you know, world building and, you know, mo moving moving sort of the next level. And I think in Dark Crystal, what, what he really liked more than anything else is, you know, was thinking about that world. Uh, you know, if you needed a chair, like the example I was using is if, if you needed a chair in that world, you couldn't just go to a prop closet and pull one out. So Jim loved to think about, okay, what kind of tree is growing in this world? And if I cut it down, what does the cut of the grain look like across that kind of tree? And then if I'm going to build a chair, what would a nail look like? You know, I mean, it was like incredibly, incredibly well thought out. Um, you know, and, and then the story of Dark Crystal sort of came I don't want to say incidentally, but it almost came second to that world building. Jim just loved that that new sense of design, that sort of freedom of design that he got, uh, and then had to figure out a way to make it all work in the real world, which was part of you know project Project Yoda. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess like sort of um, uh, was or the I guess Yoda with Empire Strikes Back was sort of almost like a bit of a test to see you know if Yoda worked in Empire, then then the Dark Crystal could could work the same way, but just you know but have it, you know, full on, full on puppetry. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, what I, I called that, it, it was like technology transfer between both uh, Lucasfilm and the Henson company. Definitely. Because, yeah. you know, because they, they needed, you know, the best puppeteer in the world, which ended up being Oz, um, yes. to perform this puppet. But they also needed to know how to build it because what they built at ILM, at Industrial Light Magic, was special effects. They didn't know how to build a puppet necessarily. And Jim... And the Henson Company sort of knew how to build puppets, but they didn't know how to, like, you know, do all the – they were really interested in seeing how, you know, how, how ILM built all these little small devices and the radio control technology and things like that. So it was their opportunity to sort of play an ILM sandbox at the same time. So, you know, they went in there to build Yoda and, you know, they could figure out here's how you run the cables to the neck that will move the eyes. And the, so it was it was really their their ability to sort of go in there and, and you know, and I don't want to say steal the technology, but like do the tech transfer, figure out how it works, build these things. And, for example, when they got done building Yoda, you know, Frank Oz said, well, Yoda was still kind of a special effect. He wasn't really a puppet because they, they built him out of, you know, material like this really stiff rubber that was almost you know, not pliable enough to use. And, and the way the puppet came out on, on his wrist instead of on the top of his hand. So it was really hard to move his fingers to move them out. So, you know, what happened with Yoda in a way is they also learned how not to do it as well. They learned what worked and what didn't work. So when they got ready to do Dark Crystal, they already had all this technology that essentially ILM had paid for um, that they could then move right into building the creatures in, in the Dark Crystal. And I, I guess, um, yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, you're definitely right on about how um, the world really came first and then the story um, came second. Um, I guess I'm just really interested um, with yourself. Like, how, how did you um, discover the Dark Crystal? I actually saw Dark Crystal in the theater <laughs> um, when I was a kid. I think I was 13. What year was that? 82? Yeah. Yeah, 82. December 82, I think, came out in, in the US. I was or 15. Yeah, I was 14, 14, 15, I guess maybe. Um, and so, I, yeah, I saw it in the I saw it in the theater. Um, as I sort of jokingly, but also have seriously told Lisa Henson, uh, I, I was part of their problem because I saw Dark Crystal in the theater and walked out of there, sort of shaking my head, going, you know, I, what, what was that? Yes, um, yeah. 
So I was one of the people that was frustrating poor Jim Henson because, you know, Jim was out there trying to expand and move beyond, you know, the Muppets and be more than the Muppet guy. And people like me were trying to drag him kicking and screaming back into, you know, the colorful Muppets. Uh, You know, we we weren't willing to let him grow up, (laughs) you know, and go out there and be the artist and do this, you know, really artistic vision that he had. We were trying to drag him back to Kermit and Fozzie the whole time. Yeah, I guess that was, um, I guess, the most interesting, um, yeah, you know, during the making of the film or when he um, had his first uh, test screening of the film. Um, and, yeah, there was that negative um, reaction with um, people felt like they didn't understand what was going on and that, you know, the characters needed to to, to speak English, like with the Skeksis and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so sort of like he had to really kind of go back you know, with the screenwriter yeah, and yeah. Yeah. The way, the way, you know, Lisa Henson described it, 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 she used the perfect word for it. So I used it in the book. She said, Jim essentially wanted it to be like an opera mm. in that they could create this language for it. And the visuals would be so strong that you didn't have to understand the language to understand what was going on. Yeah. So, you know, again, Jim was very invested in the world and, you know, was, was, was thought that the, the very strong visuals and the strong performance of these characters and then, you know, creating this very well thought out language for all these characters uh, would be enough that people would understand it. I mean, it's, it's essentially a $25 million art film, you know, like a 25 million um, uh, research and development for um, for Fraggle Rock. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and so he does this showing, I think, in Detroit. And the audience is absolutely baffled by it. Yeah. And uh, and I think Jim writes in I think Jim writes in his diary, not good. Uh, you no. know? <laughs> but he gets out of it. So he, he knows he's got a problem. So he knows that they've got to dub English back into it. So he brings in, you know, poor David O'Dell, who who spends, you know, weeks locked up in this hotel room running the film back and forth in slow motion, trying to match, you know, dialogue to the way the mouths are moving on these characters to try to make, you know, make the get a plot that makes sense. So, so, you know, they end up doing that and then they had another showing of it. And, and I think Jim writes in his journal at that point a bit better. So, yeah. you know, so, so he was getting there, but I don't think he ever quite got it, uh, to where he, no, you know, that's not quite fair. Cause I, I think Jim was very happy with the final product. I think it did, you know, it looked the way he wanted to do, but, um, you know, I, I think I was, I was just having a conversation with somebody else about this. I, you know, I think if you would make this movie today with yes. CGI, it would still look the same. I mean, that, I think, is the real strength of The Dark Crystal, is it doesn't look like anything else. No. It doesn't feel like anything else. And if you look at it nowadays, it still doesn't look like anything else. So I really think even if you had the huge technology at your hands today and did it CGI, it would still look the same. That's how good it is. I, I think it would be something that would could have been, that could, you know, if it was done today, it'd be very interesting to see it done at, like as a motion capture. Um, you had like, yeah. a, you know, Andy Serkis and his company, you know, um, yeah. collaborated or whatnot, just, just, yeah, making things up. But, um, yeah, I would think like motion capture is sort of, is almost like the, um, the next generation of, um, puppeteering in a strange yeah. way. Yeah, and, and, and it's, you know, it, it's got its, you know, it's got its problems structurally, story-wise, and so on. And, and yeah. I hadn't really realized it until Michael Frith said it when I was interviewing him that he was basically saying that, you know, you were, you were, you know, wiping out an entire species at, in the blink of an eye yeah. in the name of the <laughs> good. But he's like, come on, you know, I had never really thought about that. Way to ruin the movie for me, Michael. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's issues with the play. It's almost like when you go to see, you know, the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. It's so invested in giving you like the politics and the backstory that it almost isn't interesting. And Dark Crystal is like almost more interested in giving you like, you know, the rules of the world than it really is in, 
you know what I mean? It's it's almost like it it doesn't get to the plot in time. No, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. I mean, yeah. There are a lot of yeah. The moment like this, the story it, it is a very simple story. It's just pretty much you know, about uh, you know about a, a galfling who has to get to the castle in you know just in, in time to struck you know to grab find the shard and you know heal it back to the um to the big dark crystal. Yeah, it's the Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the other interesting thing during the time was um, how um, Jim Henson he he wanted uh, Frank Oz to co-direct uh, with him on this film. Um, what was you know, I guess Frank Oz's sort of thoughts on actually co-directing a feature film uh, with Jim Henson? Because I would have thought that that would have been something that was very rare at a time, uh, probably in the eighties, to you know to have you know two directors on a feature-length film. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's actually you know it's still still very rare actually. Yeah. Um. So you know, I mean, it was partly I think Jim was doing a couple of things. I think he was being very generous uh, with with Oz. You know, Oz is I don't want to call him Jim's protege, um, but mm. you know, Oz was very interested in being his director, and Jim I think wanted to give him the chance to learn how to direct while still keeping him sort of under his wing. You know, as Oz said, he felt very protected the entire time because he had mm. Jim there. And yeah. he had David Laser, you know, producing. Jim's producer was involved, and so, so you know, Jim was there to give Oz sort of his first, you know, real chance behind the camera, while still sort of under Jim's umbrella. And then later, Oz was able to direct Muppets Take Manhattan, and Jim was able to sort of just stand off to the side. Yeah. Uh, so you know, sort of, sort of, sort of gave Oz his his you know his on on the job training for directing. But Jim also said to him, you know, I re- I think it would be better if you were involved. Okay. And for him, it was really kind of that simple. He really thought, you know, Jim was all about the work. And I think he just really thought that with Oz there, who was, you know, probably, I, I don't even think arguably, you know, the best Muppet performer, one of the best puppeteers ever. Uh, I think he knew that it would be helpful to have somebody there who, you know, knew intuitively the rhythms of puppetry and how these things worked. And, you know, I, and Oz had, you know, has a different sort of comedic sense than Jim does. And, you know, it, I think it's Oz, Oz's sense you see at work there at, at, uh, you know, with the podlings. I mean, that's sort of Oz's sense in directing there. And Jim loved, he directed the, the Skeksis dinner, you know, with all that craziness going on there. That's yeah. very much Jim. And Jim loved working with the performers. He loved getting in there with the mystics and performing, you know, working with those guys. And Oz, you know, that's not really his speed. He was, he was off doing other stuff. So, you know, they both had strengths that they played off of. But Jim just, you know, he, he was never afraid to, to, you know, share credit and, you know, bring somebody else in who knew more than he did or who complimented him, him on, in other ways. Yeah, yeah, and I guess um, I guess what was amazing, I guess you know, from the making of the film is how the film. Uh, I guess I guess one of the um, big things that happened with the film uh, when it came to um, an Australian, um, oh, forgotten his name, but um, you know how he sort of came over and, and took over the um, was did he took over was it the Lou Grade um, studios or oh, oh uh, Robert Holmes of course oh Robert Holmes yes yes yeah. yeah. Yeah, who uh, yeah, who ended up buying out sort of sort of a hostile takeover, shoved great off his own board, and uh, and took over ACC. Yeah, yeah, and, and and ended up owning the film. And Jim, uh, you know, Jim wasn't, you know, Holmes Accord had a had a management style very different than Grade and very different than Jim. Mm. And you know, Jim loved Lord Grade because Grade was had come out of sort of you know the English version of vaudeville. Had been a, a dancer, danced to Charleston on a narrow oval table, and you know was a performer and sort of an old school vaudevillian. 
Yes. And, yeah. You know, and, and really got Jim. Like the two of them, you know, they really understood and appreciated each other. I and mean, they were both artists and both creative guys. And they weren't embarrassed by television. They both loved TV and things like that. So, you know, so he, so he and Grade really got one another. Yeah. Holmes Accord came in, and Holmes Accord had a very different mentality than Lord Grey. For Holmes Accord, you know, Jim's work was a line in a ledger. It was profit mm. and loss to him. It yep. wasn't art. Whereas, you know, Lord Grey was the one who was willing to take a chance and say, yeah, I'll give you this, you know, the money you need for a Dark Crystal. And, you know, I'll let you do it on the condition that you do the sequel to the Muppet movie with it. And, you know, I mean, but was willing, you know, was willing to negotiate and understood the art. Holmes Accord wouldn't have ever been that way. And, and you know, Jim didn't really like that style. He didn't really like, you know, that sort of ruthless bottom line mentality of Holmes Accord. And was one of the few people that could make Jim raise his voice. You know, he and Holmes Accord would sort of go at it on yeah. the phone. And finally, Jim went over in person and you know, was determined to get his properties away from him and ended up buying uh, Dark Crystal outright away from him for, I think, $15 million. I'd have to double check that, but I believe $15 million, yeah. um, which was, I think, uh, less than Grade had put into it. I think he bought it for less than they, they had put into it. So it was you know, technically, quote, losing money for them. But I think, I think Holmes of Court was glad just to be done with it. Uh, and, then, and then Jim came back several years later and bought all the Muppet shows back for a mere $6.5 million yeah. cash. So, uh, but anyway, but yeah, Holmes Accord and Jim were not a good fit. No, no. And I, I guess, you know, it was sort of, it was sort of a good thing, I guess, at the end that, um, that the film, when it came out, it sort of, you know, pretty much made its money back, um, right. essentially. So, um, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, uh, very good. Um, I guess right now, like you're, you're currently writing your next biography, um, on George Lucas. Um, and I guess what I find interesting is that how much alike, um, George Lucas and Jim Henson really are. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and, um, and how, and how, and how's the process, um, going along with that? And if it's been any different compared to, um, writing the Jim Henson, the biography, <laughs> Well, the the big difference is is George Lucas is still living. So yeah, yeah, well, that, <laughs> that'd be one. This <laughs> makes it a little bit different. Yeah. Um, however, the one the one big difference between he and Jim is um, Jim never really talked all that much. Um, you know, so it was it was really important to me when I was writing Jim's story that I have access to their archives because at least he would have papers and things like that where he had written stuff down. Um, Jim didn't like to do interviews. He didn't talk all that much. Um, where Ed, whereas George Lucas has been talking constantly over 50 years. Yeah. So, you know, so there's so much more stuff out there. In fact, in a way, there's almost, you know, there's a, a wide swath of stuff that, you know, to sort through. I don't want to say there's too much to use, but there's just so much stuff out there. And, you know, there's documentaries and there's film commentaries and there's newspaper articles and there's books and upon books upon books on his work. And, you know, Jim, Jim didn't really have that. Um, so, so it's, it's a different, it's a different approach in that the, you know, the Lucas one is, is a real sort of deep drill research project with just, just so much stuff out there. Uh, and, you know, and again, a really fun project to do a great subject and, um, just the, the approach on it is slightly different because again, this one's sort of deep drill with just a huge swath of info. Jim didn't have quite as much and involved a little bit more of, you know, of of having to go into the the, the holdings of a private company and get into their archives. So, so Jim, Jim Henson will be released on, um, paperback on, uh, May the 5th. Hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) still trying to get to we're still clearing some of the images the, the, the images are the same as they were in the hardcover but you have to go back and re-clear them for the paperback and those things always take time so i'm still in the process of doing that 
Ah, uh, yes, excellent. Yeah, so no, I think it's you know very exciting, you know, for it to be out, you know, coming out soon on paperback. Um, and I I really enjoyed um actually the the audiobook uh, version of um Jim Henson, the biography. Yeah, yeah. isn't he fabulous? That's yeah, uh, Kirby Hayborn. He just did a a killer job on that. I think it's terrific. Yeah, that's actually how I sort of first um you know uh you know well listen listen to to your story was through the audiobook, and then from there I sort of. Um, ended up picking up the um, the iBook version of um, of Jim Henson. I guess what's interesting with um, with iBooks, um, it sort of actually sort of gave me back into reading because it's like if there's a you know, for example, if I'm you know reading a story and you know trying to figure out what this word means, and all, all I can do is just double tap on the word and hit define, and I can you know find out what that word means and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, brilliant the way they do that stuff now. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing the um the technology um that has really gone um and I and the, the audiobook I and I always tell everybody I can take no credit for that because I I, <laughs> I have no say in the audiobook but they could mm. not have picked a better person to read that I Kirby Hayborn is amazing he does just a, a wonderful job in that 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 book yeah definitely yeah and um I mean it, it is still a bit of a shock that it's um there's almost been um 25 years um since the yeah. passing of Jim Henson um. Yeah. Yeah, it's still, um, I think I was like listening um, to one of your interviews and I think you said describe how, you know, when you talk to Jim and sort of, you know, it's, it still hits home. Yeah, I, that, one of the phrases I use one time is, is that it's really rough math <laughs> yeah. for people to do. When you say, you know, it's been 25 years, people go, God, really? You know, people still remember, it's not necessarily like they remember exactly, you know, what they were doing the second they heard it, but they, you know, they remember they remember hearing, you know, when Jim, when Jim passed, they, they still, you know, they still remember, oh God, yeah, I remember when that happened. Um, you know, it's still very visceral for people. And, you know, with the Muppet performers and people, it's still, it, you know, they, they still remember it vividly. It was a really, mm. you know, real visceral moment for them to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I guess like, um, yeah. And I really got the feeling that, yeah, he definitely, um, like, loved working all the time um but, but do you believe that was something that he, he he had a struggle with creating a balance between work and his family life yeah i mean you know all of his kids said the best way to get to know their father was to work with him so anytime there was you know christmas break or spring break they would fly over to the muppet workshop in london and they would go work with him and they and jim loved to take vacations you know that was one of his favorite things to do was go on these really as heather henson put it over the top yeah. vacations he loved to go on balloon trips and rent a yacht and go around the greek islands and you know he really knew how to relax in style yeah and take his kids on that so he loved taking big vacations with his kids and he loved working with his kids you know he loved when brian would come to the set and work on things with him so so you know work everyone always said he was always at his best when he was working uh but jim loved being a dad you know, that was that was one of his favorite things to do. When I asked I asked uh, John Henson, you know, what do you think uh, your dad's favorite project was? And he looked at me and he kind of smiled. And he said, us, <laughs> you know, he said, I, I think he was the proudest of of his of his five kids. And I think yeah. that's probably absolutely right. Jim loved being a dad. Uh, now, he wasn't always the uh, the best husband. Uh, yeah. If he yeah. got an Achilles heel, that's probably it. Um so, you know, that, and he was always sort of horribly embarrassed by that and tried to keep it very low key and, and try to keep it out of sight as much as he could. But everybody knew about it. And I think he did. And, and he knew that everybody knew about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, so that's that's sort of, you know, his, his one his one weak spot there. But as as far as the separating, you know, work and 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 home life, I mean, Jim couldn't understand why people didn't like to work. Now, yeah. what he 
probably didn't understand this rest of don't, don't have the luxury and the fun of working with Muppets every day. So it's a little different. But, you know, he, he really thought it was one of life's great joys was was working. So I think, you know, Jim's attitude would be, you know, well, why, you know, why would I not want to be working? Work is awesome. And you know, <laughs> work is what I love to do. Um, so it, it was a great place for the kids to come and Jim loved it. You know, the, he loved them in the recording studio and he loved, he loved having them with him on set. So I think when he could mix the two of them, um, he did. And he also went, you know, in sort of his early days and throughout the the seventies, at least, you know, he, it was very, it was a big deal to him to, you know, come home in the evenings. He would commute into the city from his home in Connecticut. He'd drive into the city and, you know, at the end of the day, he'd come back home and you know, some, sometimes he'd fall asleep at the wheel and wreck his car, but uh, yeah. he would, he would drive back home and he liked, you know, coming home to a house with his wife and his kids and his dog and his, you know, cat and the seven rabbit, rabbits and guinea pigs and all the stuff they had in the house. You know, he really liked being a father and a, you know, a husband and a homebody. So, you know, he really he really liked that, even if he couldn't always live up to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, um, yeah, he was such a visionary man. Um, and like, you know, I, I, I would imagine, you know, had he, if he was still alive, you know, you know, today, um, just it, I think he'd just be just amazed at how um, advanced the technology um, things have really become. Yeah. You know, Michael Frith said that he thinks Jim would be in not seventh heaven, but 700th heaven <laughs> with, the te- with the technology that they have today. Because Jim, you know, Jim was, if he, if he wasn't inventing it, he was an early adapter yeah. on technology. You know, he, he, he was never intimidated or afraid or, you know, worried about new technology. He, he was always willing to embrace it, to use it, to make it work for him. Uh, you know, I think he would love CGI. I think he would love the way 3D technology looks in movies today. I mean, I, I think he would love, you know, messing, you know, getting his hands on all this stuff and playing with it and, you know, motion capture. I mean, Lord knows mm. what he'd be doing with all this technology today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, um, I, I, I actually, I, I watched a little video, um, interview of Jim Henson and he spoke about how sort of like at the end of the Dark Crystal, how he probably would have liked to kind of shot it on, on video in a way that he'd be able to, you know, create much had had the effects i guess of, of this urskex uh much better than what you know he was able to do at the time uh, with the film so it kind of speaks volumes i guess yeah of you know he was always looking looking ahead and looking to the future and um you know anticipating the next thing you know with you know with high resolution video um yeah, yeah and, and cable like new cable tv was going to be big like yeah. new people create original content like you know he did it with fraggle rock but he had, he just knew that people were going to do and create the original content for cable that high def was going to be the way of the future and there's even a great clip on uh youtube if you could find it where like he's essentially calling uh youtube yeah. <laughs> you know he's got a little handheld mini cam and he's like eventually anybody will be able to make a film it'll be this easy to use and you can you know anybody can see it and you can put it up and you know he didn't say put it up but you know he's like he's essentially you know in inventing youtube in a youtube video yeah <laughs> it, it, it's amazing like he, yeah. he just he knew that technology was going to be available for everybody absolutely yeah yeah um yeah so brian j jones yeah thank you so much for um being um letting me the opportunity to be able to interview you about jim henson uh for trial by stone oh sure it's a great pleasure philip thank you you already taken too long delfling hurry at last, the crystal calls. It is time, time to return to the castle. The crystal calls! To the crystal chamber! 
that's all the time I have for this month's Trial by Stone. Special thanks to Brian J. Jones for being this month's guest. If you'd like to know more about the show, then visit our website at facebook.com forward slash trial by stone podcast or follow us on Twitter at trial by stone pod. You can email us at trial by stone podcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show and you think that others would like it too, then we'd love for you to write a review on iTunes and hopefully they'll help uh, spread the word about the podcast. I hope you all enjoyed the show and stay tuned for the next episode of Trial by Stone.